Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria talks about his meetings in Washington, D.C. Part of my mission here today is to encourage these other cities to follow our lead because San Diego cannot solve the nation's housing crisis by itself. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A city council debrief with outgoing councilman Chris Kate. I think one of the things that I have some trepidation and concern about is really having diversity points on the council because there is now a monolithic block of partisanship on the council. Longtime San Diego LGBTQ activist Nicole Murray Ramirez is honored with a street sign. And a San Diego video game star talks about his special line of work. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Our monthly conversation with San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria spans the country today. Mayor Gloria is in Washington, D.C., speaking at the National Housing Conference and meeting with the head of Homeland Security. He'll also have meetings about his new executive order to crack down on fentanyl use. Meanwhile, back in San Diego, a swearing-in ceremony on Monday will begin a new two-year term for the city council. And this time, with one new member, San Diego will have an unprecedented all-democratic council. Welcome, Mayor Todd Gloria. How's Washington, D.C.? Good morning, Maureen. Uh, It's a bit cold here. Um, I'm looking forward to coming home as soon as possible. (laughs) Now, in speaking at the National Housing Conference... Are you finding that some of San Diego's approaches to providing more affordable housing are unique? In some ways, yes. In part because we have an extremely talented housing commission that has been extremely effective at taking some of the federal and state relief funds that we've been provided and getting them into the hands of San Diegans, thereby preventing homelessness and other tragedies. The other thing that we have going for us is a number of market-based reforms that are really boosting the number of permits that we're issuing for new home construction. And that is something that not necessarily a lot of cities are doing. Part of my mission here today is to encourage these other cities to follow our lead 
because San Diego cannot solve the nation's housing crisis by itself. We need other cities helping us. Uh, and so that's part of why I wanted to be here today. How is San Diego differentiating the effort to build more affordable housing for the middle class with the need to provide more housing for the homeless? Well, we have to be able to do both. And frankly, both are areas of extreme need. Maureen, when you look at where we have largely built housing in recent years, it's mostly at the upper end of the economic ladder, a lot of luxury apartments and condominiums. We have had success at building low-income housing, but not nearly enough to meet the need. And we've made nearly no progress when it comes to middle-income housing. My administration over the last two years has advanced a series of housing reforms to try and address both of those needs, more housing for low-income people and more housing for middle-income people. And I think when you look at our affordable housing density program, as well as some of the innovations we've advanced in accessory dwelling units, what you can see is the production increases in affordable housing and naturally affordable housing, homes that folks like you and I, average everyday San Diegans, can actually afford to live in. San Diego, as well as other cities in California, experienced a confusing episode last month when Governor Newsom said he would withhold state funding for homelessness because all the local plans were inadequate. And then he released the funds anyway. So what was that about? Well, I think the governor was giving voice to the frustration that he has, that mayors like myself have, and that frankly, every Californian has when it comes to our homelessness crisis. We are too rich of a state to have this many people live unsheltered, and yet we do. And we put more money towards this than we ever have, and yet we're not seeing the progress that we want to see. So the the frustration is understandable. What I was able to do in traveling up to meet with the governor is explain what we are doing. A 40% increase in the number of shelter beds in our city over the last two years. Hundreds of new permanent supportive housing units are funded and under construction. And that standing up of a citywide street outreach team that is helping to get hundreds of people housed with great regularity. The problem, Maureen, is that for every 10 people we get housed, 13 people become homeless. And so that's why the governor is frustrated by the lack of progress. What we did was commit to working even harder. And I shared with him some things I think the state can do to actually help cities like ours make more of an impact. My hope is that he'll listen to those requests and take action very soon. Did San Diego alter its homeless policies in any way as a result of the governor's criticism? Well, we have adjusted our targets that are uh, given to us by the state, so specifically working with the inputs that they gave us. Frankly, Maureen, uh, we were using a 2020 uh, baseline year. I don't think that's the right year to use. As your listeners may recall, we converted our convention center into a massive homeless shelter. And that really skews our numbers as a result. We've also been asking the state to change the way the incentive structure is made. Cities are incentivized to actually aim low in order to get more money. I think changing that formula is a part of how we're able to get to higher targets. Cities need to be incentivized to aim as high as possible and reach those goals rather than aim as low as possible and miss them. So frankly, we have adjusted our posture. We hope to get thousands more people off the streets. But until we address the causes of homelessness, whether it's high cost of rent, when a one-bedroom apartment goes for $3,000 a month in San Diego, it's no surprise we have an explosion in homelessness, as well as the growing mental illness crisis that we're facing and the addiction crisis, specifically around methamphetamine and fentanyl. Until we can address those supply side issues. We're going to continue to have this problem, uh, but I will do absolutely everything I can. I will be unrelenting in making sure that we expand our outreach, shelter, and housing opportunities so that as few as people as possible have to live on our streets. Speaking of that, recently San Diegans saw two mothers and their children spend a night on the streets after the city towed away the vehicles they were living in. Do you think the city's policy on towing should change? Well, the city council is actually exploring that based off of an audit that was recently performed by our independent city auditor. 
But the question to me, Maureen, has been, can we provide more resources to those folks living in their cars? And the answer is yes, and we're doing that. You may know that we recently expanded one of our safe parking lots to be 24-7, which was not what it was previously, making it infeasible for many folks to use. We'll be standing up a new parking lot, a fourth one uh, in the Claremont area very soon. And so I will continue to expand the offerings and expect individuals who are living in their car to use them. We have to still enforce our laws, Maureen, and that does apply to people who are sheltered and unsheltered. In this particular case, my hope is that folks who find themselves living in their cars and living in places where it are not permissible or with other vehicle impairments like past registration tags will come to our safe parking lots where we work with providers like Jewish Family Service to actually address those inadequacies, to get the repairs done to the cars, to get the registrations updated and allow them to hopefully get back on their feet. That is the solution to this particular problem. Now, Mayor Gloria, while you're in Washington, you'll be meeting with the head of Homeland Security. What is it you want him to know about immigration at the San Diego border? Actually, Maureen, I just finished that meeting with Secretary Mayorkas, and it was a very productive one. Secretary Marcus has been a friend to San Diego. He's made himself available to me anytime I've ever asked, and he's visited me several times in San Diego. And what I shared with him this morning was the concerns around the lifting of Title 42, a Trump-era immigration restriction uh, that has uh, kept the numbers of asylees down uh, along our southwestern border. Uh, With that uh, restriction uh, anticipated to be lifted on uh, December 21st, I want to explain to Secretary Mayorkas the need for greater communication and coordination between uh, Homeland Security and local cities like ours, um, and also the need for more resources. Uh, Jewish Family Service, Catholic Charities, and others who do incredible work caring for those who avail themselves of their uh, rights under international law need to have services. And right now, I'm I'm concerned they don't have the resources to do that. Um, The secretary was very open. He was very direct. uh, And I'm hopeful that greater communication along with more resources will be coming to make sure that as Title 42 is lifted, the communities like San Diego are able to accommodate that restriction change. You recently issued an executive order to increase action against the use and sale of illegal fentanyl. Will you be discussing that with drug officials in Washington? Yes, I have a meeting later today with the White House's Office of Drug Policy uh, to ask for their greater partnership uh, on this issue. I mean, too many San Diegans are dying of fentanyl overdoses. They're folks of all stripes, all classes. and But this has been particularly brutal on our homelessness population and a part of why we're seeing a growth in our homeless uh, population. Uh, my conversation with our federal partners is going to be very clear. We want to see fentanyl listed as a Schedule One drug, uh, making it the most regulated form of substances that we have. It currently does not enjoy that status. I think that's a problem. I think we also need to have a permanent U.S. attorney. Uh, We've had great leadership from Randy Grossman as our interim U.S. attorney, but it's time to have a permanent person, whether it's Randy or someone else, to make sure that these prosecutions continue and that those who prey upon vulnerable people in our community are held accountable. We have to have greater enforcement of our laws around those who are dealing this poison, and that's the message I'll be sending to the White House later today. You've talked about a city-county collaboration against the use of illegal fentanyl. Would that be along the lines of the effort against methamphetamine, like the creation of a fentanyl task force? The city and the county already collaborate closely, uh, particularly from a law enforcement perspective. We have something called Team 10, which is local, state, and federal partnerships to really go after drug dealers and to trace back the sources of this of this poison. Where I think greater collaboration can come is in prevention and response. And I think particularly in the introduction of Narcan into specific environments where we know it can prevent the overdose deaths that we're seeing. How do you think San Diego might be affected by the new GOP-controlled Congress? 
Well, what I can tell you is that the president and the Democratic-controlled Congress is how we've been able to make ends meet over the last couple of years. The American Rescue Plan sent the city of San Diego roughly $300 million. These are the dollars we're using to pay police officers, firefighters, keep our libraries and parks open. My concern is that if we don't have that similar level of cooperation and partnership going forward, that whatever bumps there may be in the road ahead um, may make those bumps a lot harder for the city of San Diego and other cities across America to navigate. There's been a host of legislative accomplishments that benefit our city. My fear is that the divided control of Congress will prevent such progress on things that we need progress on, whether it's our fentanyl crisis, the need for immigration reform. There's a host of ways that the federal government can be good partners. I'm just hopeful folks will be willing to put aside their partisan differences and allow us to continue on the path forward the president has had us on the last two years. I've been speaking with San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thanks for yours. Be well. As the San Diego City Council prepares to swear in its members next week, it will also bid farewell to one notable representative. Councilmember Chris Cate has represented the city's 6th district for eight years and since 2020 has been the sole Republican on the city council. His departure comes at a time where the political landscape of San Diego looks much different than when he took office in 2014. And he joins us now. Councilmember Kate, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you for having me. So what do you see as some of your biggest accomplishments during your eight years in office? Well, a couple of things that we're able to get done were our community plan updates for Mira Mesa and Kearney Mesa and setting the vision for the next three decades for these really important neighborhoods. Uh, Mira Mesa is a a vibrant, diverse community, a huge employment center in the region. And Kearney Mesa, along with the Convoy District, is really a hub for our API community. And so setting the stage for allowing more vibrancy and opportunity for the Convoy District and the Kearney Mesa area as a whole is is really a a huge accomplishment uh, in in and of itself. Additionally, uh, we worked really closely with our API-owned businesses and tried to uh, really encourage them and support them, especially during the midst of the pandemic when our API-owned businesses were going through a really difficult time, uh, both financially as well as culturally, and and having to deal with uh, some of the backlash from the pandemic and and API hate. So uh, supporting our API-owned businesses in this community as a whole was uh, really important for me being the lone API on the city council and representing an API-influenced district. So aside from from, from those uh, larger policy goals, uh, I think supporting our neighborhoods and seeing park projects uh, go through, uh, fixing our dilapidated infrastructure uh, throughout the district and really setting the tone for uh, what's to come in the future. Your district for sure was rich in diversity. Was it difficult bringing different groups together? And what are your thoughts on District 6 as you depart? I don't think so. You know, I, I think it's been one of success in that we were able to build coalitions to support various policy ideas um, or setting the vision for various communities. Fortunately, living in Mira Mesa, uh, I've been able to work very closely with various community leaders throughout our district and and try to uh, really be a, a servant to them in terms of, of uh, fulfilling their request and trying to get things 
through the budget process and the bureaucracy at the city to ensure that projects that were important to them got done. And I think it's because we've been able to be a very positive coalition builder uh, working across party lines to get things done. The council itself has seen significant change throughout the years. How do you feel the city has evolved or devolved politically over the years? I think one of the things that I have some trepidation and concern about is really having diverse viewpoints on the council because there is now a monolithic block of of, uh, partisanship on the council. I hope that doesn't prevent uh, a discussion, dialogue of diverse viewpoints and ideas and philosophies. Uh, when it comes to various policy measures that are being debated at the council, I don't think it's anyone's best interest to have a set of group think on different policy ideas. Uh, I'm positive that won't necessarily be the case, though, because I think the colleagues that I, I work with now are are, are are great and open and and wanting to have a conversation. I think the last two years uh, has proven that, uh, my being a lone uh, Republican on the council and uh, bringing a perspective that differs from them um, more often than not, and being able to work with my colleagues uh, to get things done. And I was sometimes a lone dissenting voice uh, on 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 certain policy ideas, which is uh, which is okay. But at least I was able to present a viewpoint and and represent uh, a viewpoint that may not have been heard otherwise on the dais. As you just mentioned, there will soon be a 9-0 Democratic majority. The times they are changing, however. Do you think there will be a lack of conservative representation? Um, and how does it relate to what's going on nationally? That's my fear, is that uh, that there is um, a, a, a lack of, of an understanding of a viewpoint and, and consideration of that viewpoint when it comes to policymaking. Elections have consequences, right? And I think the pendulum always swings back as well, too. So while you know, we went from what was more of a conservative city to now uh, more of a progressive city, especially represented on the council, things swing back. And, you know, I I still have a positive outlook that things will moderate and we'll have representation from the Republican Party on the city council at some point in time in the future. How soon? Uh, that's to be told, but we'll. I think we'll 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 get back to some balance in the near term, and hopefully, again, that doesn't dissuade having that voice being heard or considered when it comes to voting on different policy issues at the council. What would you say is the biggest issue facing the new San Diego City Council? Where should they start? I, it's going to start with hom- homelessness and housing. I mean, that, that's, those have been the top two issues, one and two, for a number of years now. And I think you see a council that's willing to have bigger conversations about housing in general and, and building more homes uh, for San Diego residents and how that correlates with addressing our homelessness situation. I think what we are experiencing on the streets of San Diego is something that. Uh, everybody sees and how can we address whether it's mental health issues, substance abuse issues, or just again, lack of lack of housing supply in general. How, how do we address those issues so that we can act humanely and not continue to have individuals living on the streets, tents in the streets, and really impacting their quality of life as well as the surrounding neighborhoods as well too. And, and finding that right balance and, and finding solutions is a difficult one, but it's a challenge that is we're not only facing here as a city, but throughout the region and the state and the country as well. So, Chris, what is next for you? <laughs> the question I most often get, you know, um, I'm not going anywhere, thankfully. You know, I'm I'm going to continue to be involved locally, um, make sure, you know, my voice is heard in, in whatever uh, format that is. But, 
right now the the near term plan is to spend more time with my family you know my wife and and my three young kids this job doesn't uh, allow for uh, very much time uh, because of the commitments that involve with serving my community and so my hope is to 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 bank a lot more time back with with my kids and um and and see them grow up and and be present for them more than anything else i think that's uh the most important job i'll ever have and uh i embrace that and and want to make sure um i do a good job at that job well then happy holidays and best of luck i have been speaking with outgoing san diego city council member chris kate who represents the city sixth district council member kate thank you thank you so much for having me I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Heineman. At the Salk Institute, there is one researcher who is able to see himself in the genetic science he does. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge has this story about a biologist whose own experience gives him a deep understanding of the science and the culture of deafness. Uri Manor does more than one thing at the Salk Institute. On one hand, he's a specialist in microscopic photography. Recently, he showed me a hallway near his office that is lined with his photos of cells. One photo shows so-called hair cells that inhabit the inner ear and vibrate in response to sound, sending signals to the auditory nerve. Problems with those cells can cause deafness, and that is what Manor, a cell biologist, studies in his lab. You can imagine then that just a little alteration in the instructions, which is the DNA, on how to construct that hair can cause it to have a different enough shape that it no longer functions properly. Uri Manor has been profoundly hard of hearing since birth. He has never been able to hear properly without hearing aids, something his parents realized when he was two years old and still could not talk. And though he's not deaf, he kind of knows what it's like. You know, as someone who wears hearing aids, I actually kind of go back and forth between the two worlds of deaf and hearing because when I turn my hearing aids off, it's over. I don't hear you anymore. Deafness and being hard of hearing takes many forms. We all lose hearing with age. Loud music and our noisy, mechanized society also damage hearing. Manor inherited from his parents, who were not hard of hearing, the genes for profound congenital hearing loss 
A member of Manor's lab, research scientist David Rosenberg lost his hearing in one ear. He remembers when it happened in college. I was sitting for a physics exam and heard this very loud ringing. Turns out that the ringing was coming from my from my head, from my ear. And it was the first sort of symptom I had of a vestibular schwannoma. Meaning a tumor had developed on his auditory nerve. It was surgically removed, but by then he had basically lost hearing in his right ear. Rosenberg and Manor are now writing a grant proposal to fund research that could find a way to prevent the growth or even shrink those tumors by implanting in people a working copy of a crucial gene. Hi, Ada. Hi, Ada. Hi, big girl. A video produced by the Mayo Clinic shows a woman holding her deaf baby who has had its cochlear implant turned on for the first time, allowing it to hear its parents' voices. The baby smiles. Manor, the father of four kids, says seeing a similar video caused him to break down in tears. But he says some reactions to it on social media were very negative, including one who called it cultural genocide. It's a common term that suggests efforts to cure deafness are undermining a community that has its own language and ways. The California Association for the Deaf didn't respond to my effort to get them to comment. Manner says for deaf people, sign language, the culture, and the community. For many of them, it's been a lifesaver. They join a deaf community and then they have this whole world of technology and language and people who understand them. Many of them feel that, you know, this idea of curing or uh, treating or whatever, or even calling them disabled is offensive. Manner says he's become careful to say he is not trying to cure deafness. He's trying to give people the option to be able to hear. Babies these days don't have to wait until they're two years old for their parents to realize they are functionally deaf. Tests are done on newborns. Yeah, I have pictures of my daughters in the hospital wearing special headphones that can measure whether their ears are working properly. Manner says the gene mutations that cause deafness are recessive, which means kids have to get them from both parents to be affected. Manner says none of his kids are hard of hearing. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. He is the honorary mayor of Hillcrest and a champion of social justice for the Latino and gay community and just about any other marginalized group. He feels needs representation and respect. Nicole Murray Ramirez was recognized by the city of San Diego last Saturday with a portion of Harvey Milk Street in Hillcrest designated as Honorary Nicole Murray Ramirez Way. That's an honor the city reserves for a person who has performed an exemplary act or achievement of lasting interest to their community, reflecting positively on San Diego. He certainly has done that an endless number of times over the years and joins us now. Nicole, welcome. Buenos dias. Uh, Good morning. So full disclosure, I have known you over 30 years, but you were already fighting for gay rights more than a decade before that. Where did that drive for equality and representation begin for you? 
Well, actually, it became with my father. My father was a Latino activist, and he was involved with the American GI Forum, which was the first national Latino organization in the United States for Latino veterans. And part of it, obviously, the component of that was pushing for civil rights. As I mentioned, you are the honorary mayor of Hillcrest. Do you consider yourself a politician? No, I, I really consider myself an advocate for social justice and an activist. But, you know, all that politics is isn't the core of just have to get involved in politics. And I learned that uh, quickly, uh, once again, from my father, who got involved with the election of the first uh, Latino councilman in Riverside, which was a very conservative city at that time. So where did your involvement in politics begin? Well, actually, I I began as a Republican. I met uh, Richard Nixon as vice president and also his family as president. And I got involved in politics and supporting Richard Nixon for president and also for governor. And then what happened? <laughs> I actually was a Republican in Goldwater and then AIDS hit. And we had a president who could not say the word in six years of his administration. Uh, so it was just too much for me because I had people dying all around me and the government wasn't doing anything about it. Some of your most significant achievements over the years came in the early devastation of the AIDS crisis here in California and San Diego specifically. COVID and MPOX brought all of those haunting memories back, didn't they? Yes. In fact, I never thought I would have to wipe out a name in my telephone book. I was hoping for old age or whatever after AIDS. But when this came, I had to cross out a few more names. There were vaccines made available within months of COVID. There's still not an AIDS vaccine. Why the disconnect? Well, I, I, I think people have forgotten all about AIDS. People don't think that it's still around. And of course, it's still around. HIV and AIDS is, is living here. And it's sad. I always say, you know, everyone celebrates the launching of, of rockets and in, in ships into space and talk about, oh, soon we'll go to Mars. Well, we can't even live at Mars. You know, my outlook is if we would spend the money that we are spending on these space and so forth, I think we'd find a cure for AIDS and cancer, but we seem uh, to put our priorities in different ways. The community has blossomed into a much more diverse group known as the LGBTQ plus community. What does that say about progress that has been made? It says that we're an inclusive community. I, I, I always kind of chuckle when I'm in many people of color organizations or attending events and they we are LGBTQ people are in every aspect of every ethnic uh, community. We are a global community and uh, we are everyone, every religion and so forth. It's interesting that studies and surveys taken that a vast majority of LGBTQ people are religious, are spiritual, though many of the churches have turned away and also very patriotic. You know, people don't even realize that across the street from the White House, there's only five statues, and one of them is to an openly gay Revolutionary War hero, which Baron von Steuben, who was brought over by uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, after he told George Washington what a good drill instructor and a military expert he was. And he came over openly gay, brought his lover. It's, it's part of history, and people don't realize we've been in the fabric of not only America as a whole, but in our history. 
You have also done lots of charitable work. It's the holidays. You have a partner in crime who has helped you through the years raising donations for the community, Big Mike Phillips. You and Big Mike have a toy drive underway. Who will benefit and how can people help? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, Big Mike and I, in fact, last night, our great uh, city attorney, Meyer Elliott, has a program for battered women, battered men, and his families. And so last night we delivered not only toys, but gift cards for the families. We're going to go this week to another run by, I believe, the Interfaith Network for battered uh, families. And we're, it's interesting that our toy drive, you got to know this history, that when we started in 1975, because we had actually raised toys for Toys for Tots for the Marines, and we called them to come pick it up. And when they found out we were homosexual organization, they refused to come and pick up the toys. So we started our own. I'm glad to say the Marines have absolutely changed and they'll accept toys and so forth. But I and Big Mike and others have never forgotten that. So we reach out to some organizations that may not, Barrio Station and so forth, that may not get some focus. I've been talking with Nicole Murray Ramirez, beloved LGBTQ activist, honorary mayor of Hillcrest, and now he has a street with his name on it. Nicole, thank you. Well, thank you and have a great day. A new mystery novel, A History of Fear, tells the story of a convicted murderer, a young postgrad in Scotland, who claims he worked at the behest of the devil. Novelist Luke Dumas, who grew up in San Diego, tells the story through a riveting series of interviews, evidence, lore, and the murderer's first-person manifesto. Dumas will celebrate the launch of his debut novel tonight at 7 at Mysterious Galaxy Bookstore. He spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Luke, can you tell us who Grayson Hale is and why we care about him? Because it's not often we care about a narrator who is supposed to be a murderer. Yeah. Grayson Hale is a 25-year-old graduate student at the University of Edinburgh. He's actually from San Diego. He grew up in Point Loma. And he is the son of a minister, um, sort of born into a family of a a home-based ministry, very intense, almost cult-like, where he was raised to fear the devil and to fear his own innate evil um, in pretty much everything he did. And so that has really become ingrained in him. And, you know, as he grows up, he struggles with fear, uh, fear of the devil in particular, satanophobia. Um, He has this intense phobia that the devil is actually after him, trying to get him, trying to corrupt him. Um, And that leads to visions of being pursued by demonic servants uh, called fiends. You know, ultimately, Grayson is trying to please his dad and his minister father and tried to live up to his expectations as the son of a minister. And that really wreaks havoc on his psyche. And that plays out in a really sort of brutal way within this story. And in the book, before we get to hear directly from Grayson with 
his manifesto, we start with this kind of unsettlingly realistic editor's note. It almost sent me to Google to see if it was real. Can you tell me about those layers of storytelling in the book and how you have structured things? I wanted to use the sort of format of a book within a book, sort of inspired by a great work of classic Scottish fiction called The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. So I sort of used that format. And I really wanted it to feel like true crime at the beginning. And then for this editor to sort of have found this manuscript, Grayson's manuscript, after he's been found hanged in his prison cell, this manuscript is is found. And the editor sort of presenting it as a work of journalism. But there's a lot that's not clear. And Grayson is an extremely unreliable narrator. And so as she's sort of presenting his first person account of what happened leading up to the murder, she sort of inserts these emails and court transcripts and interviews that she has done um, to sort of give another angle and to sort of expose that there's more going on in the story. So Luke, can I ask you to read a little, maybe from the first page of Grayson Hale's manifesto? The devil found me at the dodgy end of Leith Walk, having lured me by use of guile and the pretense of employment, the thing I needed more than anything. It was night and a hatefully cold one for September. The wind ripped at my body like an ocean breeze turned inside out its softness frozen over into a shrill and ragged edge. I shoved my fists in my pockets and pushed on toward my destination. I didn't know what it looked like, the pub where he had asked to meet, only its name. My eyes flicked up to check the signage over every passing doorway. To my left, the wide four-lane street buzzed with a steady stream of cars and double-decker buses. The sidewalk was busy with carousers and tourists. A gaggle of teenagers in mini-dresses, braid in thick accents, unfazed by the chill on their bare skin. I weaved between them, desperate to find the place, eager to escape more than just the night air. For at that moment, I found myself gripped by a subtle anxiety, which quickened my pace to a hurried clip and rained sweat down my forehead despite the cold. I was being followed. Thank you. Can you tell me a little bit about what attracted you to Scotland as a setting for this book? I actually was a graduate student in Scotland. And before that, I did a full academic year as an undergrad there. And it was just such a stunning place. I I mean, I truly fell in love with it. It's hard not to be inspired by Edinburgh in particular. I mean, these incredible sort of Gothic spires and cobblestone streets and these really creepy, shadowy alleyways all over the place. And while I was there, I was taking these incredible Scottish literature classes and learning more about Scottish demonic fiction, which I had never heard about, but it is a literary tradition that goes back centuries. It was very different than what we sort of think of as demonic fiction here. Maybe we think of like exorcism or possession and In Scotland, it's a little bit more of an internalized view of evil, and the devil is often a character that will appear in the story as a principal character, often depicted as a man dressed in black. And he's a trickster. He's always trying to find the righteous and guide them to evil. 
sort of using their own fears and their own traumas and pain and desire. And I just found that a really, really interesting concept and loved the idea of putting sort of an American twist on that Scottish genre. That was Luke Dumas, author of A History of Fear, speaking with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon Evans. Dumas will launch the book at 7 p.m. tonight at Mysterious Galaxy Books. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Last month, PlayStation released God of War Ragnarok, an action-adventure game developed by Santa Monica Studio. If you have played the game, then you have probably killed San Diego stuntman Fernando J. Huerto more than once. KPBS arts reporter Beth Lacamando has worked with Huerto on some of his 48-hour film projects and spoke to him about doing mocap or motion captive work for the video game. Jay, when most people think about stunt work, they may think about The Fall Guy or Burt Reynolds and Hooper, but what different kinds of things can a stunt person do these days? Well, not only stunt people work in movies and television, they do live shows like in theme parks or motion capture for video games, TV, and film. Now, for stunt work, you've done things like jump off of buildings and get into fights and get kicked across rooms. So that's probably not the kind of thing that most people think about doing as a career. So what was it that kind of inspired you to become a stunt person? What inspired me to become a stunt person is Jackie Chan, number one. Like, I saw him in Rumble in the Bronx for the first time, and I decided, like, hey, I want to do that. That looks cool. Now, one of the most recent things you've done is mocap work for a video game called God of War. Now, mocap is motion capture. So before we talk about the game, just tell me a little bit about what does motion capture actually entail? So motion capture entails movement for video games or even TV and movies. So they put this suit on you that has reflective markers or LED lights, depending on the system. And it records the performer's movements and the programmers and the animators and director, they could put it directly into the scene in the game using Unreal Engine or whatever type of software or uh, program that they use to create their project. So what is it like for you as a stunt person to be acting in this kind of suit where you're not really in the real world? Doing stunts in motion capture is heaven. You don't have to hide pads. It could be right there, and the software's not going to capture that. They're only going to capture th- what's uh, reflected on the markers that are on your suit. So I could, could hit the ground all day for eight hours a day, and I, I'm still fine, and you know, I'm not banged up for the next day of work. So for this particular game, God of War, what kind of motion capture work did you do? For God of War Ragnarok, for PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4, I had to do a lot of reactions. I had to sell a lot of the hits for the player character, Kratos, the, 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 the character that you know, you know, the, the gamer controls. So I'm taking the hits like from the axe or the, the chaos blades, and I'm just doing eight hours of like doing different reactions, like getting slashed, getting my head lopped off, getting my body like split in half by Kratos with the axe. So it's just me just trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to, how do I sell this animation? 
So it's like that. It's also problem solving. How do I sell this hit? How do I sell this hit that's over the top or it's not realistic? No physics. You know, you you you, you know, <laughs> you just have to use your imagination and then let the animators take it from there. What's your collaboration like on this? I mean, are you bringing a lot to it in terms of how the fight choreography is done, or are you just there kind of reacting to direction? Uh, I'm reacting to direction. It's usually the animators, the director, and the stunt coordinator communicating to us uh, what is happening. So uh, my buddy Eric Jacobus, who uh, also hired me onto the project, he plays Kratos, the, the, the character that the, the player controls. So he gives me the direction on what to do. He's like, I'm going to do this hit and this hit. I'm like, okay, I'll sell it this way and this way. How, what do you think? And he's like, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. And then the animators and directors, they guide us from there and adjust anything that they need us to do. And what is it like to see the final product after you've worked on it? I am a huge gamer, so it was thrilling to be in probably the biggest franchise of Sony PlayStation ever. So getting to see my work, I mean, actually playing the game, being a fan, and I get to play Kratos, and I get to kill me in a way? <laughs> I think this is, one, yep, this is one of my scenes. Yep, that's me. That is me. Cause like I'm doing the reactions to all the hits, so I'm like I'm 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 most I'm, I think I'm a lot of the characters since I'm just reacting to hits. So I'm like oh I'm killing myself here, killing myself there. It's just so weird to think about, really. Now your stunt work has also brought you to some interesting places. One thing you've done as a stunt person in a theme show is you ended up in China. Yeah, that, uh, during the pandemic, my job at the Universal, it, it was down for the season, I mean, because of COVID, of course. And so this opportunity came up where they were looking for stunt performers like myself to do a show that I actually did previs on over here in the States, over in Beijing, in Universal Studios Beijing. And I also got to help open the park, being there. Yeah, as a lot of stunt performers, they do overseas contracts arena shows, like stunt arena shows all over the world, and that's one thing that stunt people do, and I, I guess I followed that path a bit, <laughs> and it was really fun, I have to tell you, like, it was a thrill getting to open a park and be part of a franchise, you know, uh, How to Train Your Dragon, and being this amazing production with Toothless flying around the audience, and then, oh yeah, that's my coworker just flying up there, it's just, it's, it's wild to think about, and it was just such a good time, really. And what is doing live stunt work like? Because that seems like a different kind of challenge. Uh, yeah, doing live shows is a different challenge because you're doing this like four or five times a day, like the same movement or the same crash or, or, or whatever. It's a little harder on the body because it's almost like four or five days a week. So, um, yeah, I feel like it's pretty hard, just like pro wrestling. Uh, I mean, film and TV stunts is a different beast in itself. It's a different challenge, different types of thing, but um, they don't have to do it like... 365 days a year so it's a great experience and it helps you become a better professional when you transition to movies and television and you have transitioned to movies and television and you've worked on a number of movies uh what films are you most proud of your work on oh, man i would say uh, us and get out because those are my two biggest studio films uh previously to that I, I worked on the commuter liam neeson's flick but yeah get out and us they were great films i mean get out won an oscar for best original screenplay so being a part of the pro you know the creative process is such a thrill like it's like when do you get a chance to work on a oscar winning film and uh, also the great jordan peele who's amazing at horror in addition to your stunt work, you're also a filmmaker yourself, and you do a lot of films on your own. You made a 
fan film for Harley Quinn that has done incredibly well on YouTube. Talk a little bit about that Harley Quinn film. I'm a huge fan of Harley Quinn. <laughs> I've been a fan since the animated series. And then when the Suicide Squad movie, when the trailer came out, I was like, oh my God, I could, we, could, we could totally do that. I have a friend who looks like her, kind of sounds like her. I'm the one holding the baseball bat right now, and that means I get to speak. And I've been training her since college, so I'm like, we should just do a fan film. Did someone ask for a table for two? I'm an action filmmaker, and I know Harley's abilities, so I'm like, okay, she's, she has super strength from Poison Ivy. You know, she, she does gymnastics, and uh, she has a bag of tricks. So I'm like, oh, yeah, she, she could totally fight. So I was like, oh, we could totally do, like, a martial arts-style Harley Quinn fight, you know, in the vein of Batman v Superman, the Ben Affleck Batman fight in the warehouse. We could do something like that. Yeah, I get the most satisfaction uh, making my own films because I have control. Even doing, doing, doing films and television in Hollywood is, is great. You know, I, I love it so much, but I can't be as creative. So I love both, but for my personal, you know, projects, you know, it's, it's, it's just more fun just because I'm with friends. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about stunt work. Thank you, Beth. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Fernando J. Huerto. God of War Ragnarok became PlayStation's fastest-selling game. You can see Huerto's work on his YouTube channel, Jabroni Pictures. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.